by way of introduction, I just want to say something a little bit autobiographical, okay? Um, so I, I came to the Lord at the age of 23. So I was like a young adult. And, and I heard, I basically, I, I don't remember everything clearly, but I do know this, is that I heard, I heard the gospel for, preached from Philippians 2. I've later found out it was Philippians 2. And especially what resonated was the part where he says, being found in human form, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given the name above all names and so on. But I remember when I heard this, I could, it's hard to explain, but maybe you get it. I could like, I could see Jesus on that cross. And all of a sudden, as we use the expression, the lights went on and I understood for the first time, I grew up in a church. I had heard all the stories. I mean, I kind of knew who Jesus was. I certainly knew, like I knew all the Bible people, like Abraham, and I knew who his son was and his son. I could answer the, answer the trivia questions, but I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I had a lot of the events. I had a lot of the facts, but I didn't get the story. And so when I heard that, it, it, I wasn't one of those that was particularly weighed down with my sin. I wasn't one of those that had to really count the costs, like, oh, what is this going to do to my life? In my case, it was just, I heard it, I got it, it made sense, and, um, and I was like, yes, you know, let's go. Um, however, not long after that, as I started to really understand kind of the glory of what is in the gospel, I almost got, it's too strong of a word to say I was frustrated or angry, but I, I, was, I was a little bit resentful. It's like, how come I was in church and I didn't know this? How come the church didn't teach me this? And of course, that wasn't quite fair, right? Because... The biggest problem was inside me. However, I, as, I, as I looked around, I would, you, know, you would ask people, how do you get to go to heaven? Well, I don't know. I know you got to go to church. You got to be pretty good. Uh, you get answers like that and you realize, you know, I'm realizing, oh, people don't know. And especially what got me, I don't know, excited or incensed or somewhere in the middle was realizing that this great truth was there. In one sense, it's plain as day, but it's so antithetical to the way that we normally think that we, that We've got it. We just, we got to learn it and learn it and learn it and remember it. As church teachers got to teach it and teach it. Um, so, but anyway, I was, part of me was a little frustrated. I didn't hear this. But I realized also, you know, the biggest problem was the veil in front of my own face. I just didn't know. I couldn't see. The lights weren't on. Um, but again, as I got excited, part of me, I started reading up on these things and, and I kind of wanted to tell people about it, right? Think, can you believe that we are justified by faith in Christ alone? And I started to learn justified really just means declared righteous before God. How can, how can my sin be counted, you know, pulled away from me as far as the east is from the west, hidden behind God's back as it were, not counted against me? And not only that, this is the part that even took me longer to get, I stand as good looking before God in Christ as Jesus himself, right? It's not just that my sins are forgiven. It's like, good luck, Walter, figure it out. It's not even just good luck, Walter, follow Jesus. You'll probably do okay. It was, your sins have been forgiven. You stand perfectly holy before me, God, in my presence. Um, and I realize that, and it's, it's, it's beyond belief. And I guess that's why it's so hard to believe. And so that was, that was an exaggeration to say that's all I thought about, but I wanted to get that across. And so I start telling people, and I'm like, and, they're, and so eventually it's kind of like, okay, yeah, I know Jesus. That's really good news because I believe in Jesus. Eh. And I'm like, no, no, wait. Okay, that's not quite right either. That how can I, you know, you can't just say I believe in Jesus and it have no impact on your life, not transform you at all. How can you um, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead when it's like, huh, I guess it happened. No, it's you gotta, 
You got to understand it, know it, savor it, delight in it. It should, your heart should just jump up out of your skin and say, yes, right? And so now, it made me think of the Martin Luther is reported to say, like, human nature is like a drunk peasant. Lift him up onto the saddle on one side of the horse and he'll fall off the other side. Or said differently, it's like we kind of drive into one of these two ditches. It's like, it's like when we don't yet know, we think, well, I got to be good enough for God. And so I better be good. And you want to say, no, 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 no. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But then we see, I don't know, we call it easy believism or something like that, where people just say, well, I believe in Jesus, whatever. And I want to say, no, 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 no. There's got to be transformation there. Wake up, see what God has done for you. And so anyway, I realized actually just yesterday that last time I actually got to preach and I, and I was in Romans, I talked about justification, exactly. But now I'm on fire about the transformation in our lives. And so what we're talking about today is, um, what do we call it? We call it uh, living in light of the day, right? How do we live? And the question is this, if God saves us by his own grace, not by what we do, what motivates me to do good? What motivates me to turn my back on the things that are passing away, that turn my back on the things of this world and live a life that's devoted to Jesus? And so that's the question I want to answer today. And we're going to do it from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. So let me read that and we will start. So starting in verse 11, this is Romans 13, it says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day it is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sens and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So would you pray with me? Father, as we open up your word, would you please open our eyes that we would see you, see our Lord Jesus as who you are. Open up our ears so that we would be receptive to hear your words. And would you enliven our hearts so that we would just be excited to, to, to drink in this life uh, that you give us. And finally, God, would you empower our lives um, that we would take what we hear and be excited to, to live it out to your glory. Accept our worship here as we sing and we pray and we hear your word, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is a short little passage. I'm going to take advantage of that by um, starting with something a little bit, um, little bit different to prepare us for it. I want to talk about a little bit what, what the scripture says about light and darkness. I don't need this pen about light and darkness. Okay, and when we use the words light and darkness, we use them metaphorically all the time, right? So if I were to say, I just couldn't figure it out, and then the lights went on, you know what that means, right? It means, oh, I get it now, I see, I understand, right? Um, could you shed some light on that for me? Right, I'm asking, please increase my knowledge, let me know. You might, you might be something more like, um, nobody knew, um, but then it came to light. Right, that's a little bit more devious, right? There's, that's got a negative connotation, right? Something that was hidden um, is exposed. Or you might say, why did you keep me in the dark? Right? Dark has that same but opposite sort of connotation. Light, of course, is we use as a metaphor for knowledge or darkness for ignorance, that sort of thing. But we use it different ways as well. What if somebody were to say, like, she is a shining example of, I don't know, something good, <laughs> right? Or back in school, that teacher was my guiding light. Or maybe the opposite would be like, ooh, 
that's a shady character, <laughs> right? We use light and dark to kind of talk about moral goodness or badness or things that we approve of or disapprove of, things that are glorious versus things that are shameful, right? So that's another way that we use it. And finally, a third one that, you know, that occurred to me is somebody might talk like this. I feel or I felt like, like there was just darkness all around me, fog. I couldn't see anything. It was a dark time in my life. Right, so that's kind of a sense of loneliness, uh, despair. But we also have the expression, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. That would be an expression of hope. Okay, so light has all of these different connotations. Um, knowledge, goodness, holiness, um, hope, and darkness, the opposite. And of course, the Bible uses these things all the time too. Like, if, you were to, if I were to say, um, in the Bible, what's the most bright light, where does bright light show up in the Bible? You can think of a few things. I thought of the transfiguration where Jesus, for a moment, it's like his veiled humanity was peeled back and his disciples could actually see him for who he gloriously was. Or when, when the Lord came and showed himself to Paul, he was blinded because of the light. Or in heaven, it's like talked about as the lamb is the light and that sort of thing. Um, God is light. God's presence is represented by light. And we're going to get to that. Um, darkness, though. If you're cast into the outer darkness, what does that mean? away from the presence of God. Or when judgment comes, there's darkness, the sun is darkened, smoke, that sort of thing. Darkness is judgment. Um, when Jesus hung on the cross, what happened to the sky in midday? It became dark, judgment. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? Light is a spiritual direction. Light shows things to be true. It exposes things. It, makes, it shows you reality. Darkness hides like Jesus would accuse the uh, Pharisees of their hypocrisy, hiding th this darkness in their hearts, and so on. And so I want to take just a few more minutes to talk about how is light used throughout the Bible. And I think what this will do is it'll help us to appreciate Romans 13 even better. Okay? Okay, so how does it start off? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was, that was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, right? So it starts off with this darkness, chaos, unformedness. But what was the first thing that God did? He said, let there be light, right? Let there be light. And so out of the darkness comes the light. And you'll see that, oops, I feel this on me and I feel like it's a bug or I can, I can focus. Um, but God said, let there be light. And then throughout this creation, there would be morning, there would be evening and then morning. There'd be evening and then the next morning, God would do something glorious and reveal himself, right? Out of darkness would always come this, this light. God created these good things. And when he created, you, you could imagine that there was the, the light of God everywhere because Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, they walked with God. And so there's a sense in which his presence was there. There was, I guess it probably doesn't mean everything was like blindingly light, but the light of the Lord was there. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? They didn't have to hide anything because they lived in the light. But when they sinned, as you know, the fellowship was broken, cast into exile. You could say kind of darkness. The sun didn't go dark, but that light of the Lord, that knowledge of God, in fact, you know, another way that the Hebrew would put it is like God's face shining on, his countenance resting on them was no longer there. However, he did make a promise that they would not die that day, but instead he would send someone that would, you know, crush the head of the serpent and, and so on. And so, I don't know if I saw this in a, I have a recollection of seeing this in a video or something where the light, the knowledge of God is represented as light. And it's almost like at the beginning, if you thought that, 
there would be this glorious light at the beginning, sin comes into the world, and now it's kind of restricted, right? Because it's almost like a welder's mask put in front of this glorious light for the man and the woman to see. They have children, and their children have children, and their children have children, and people spread out into the world. But what about the light? I don't know, it sounds like the, the, that one line of Seth, like they're believers, but it sounds like just probably millions of people spread out into the world and darkness covers the face of the earth. And then it comes to the point where there's a few, I mean, there's Enoch, Methuselah, Noah. So there's a little bit of light. There's this dim light sort of flickering along. And finally, um, it says God re even regretted that he had made the people because of the sin in the world. And as you know, he, God closed up how many people in the ark? Anybody know how many people he closed up in the ark? Eight people, yes. Noah and his family were in the ark, and there was judgment, darkness. But then out of that, humanity spread again. But again, it's kind of like that light, this light that was maybe with Noah and his, his sons and their children and children, children. I'm sure they passed on, who is God? Who is the Lord? But then as the people spread out, it's almost like a little light that flickered more dimly. And in fact, when God called Abraham, at that point, was there even knowledge of God in the world? I, I don't know really, but he called, it says that Abraham himself and his family were idolaters, but yet God called him out and brought him and led him and throughout his life trained him and taught him. And it's like that light was now showing because God was revealing himself to Abram, to Abraham. And so as you know, 400 years later, Four hundred years later, God's people are in slavery. Right? This would be a, characterized as a dark time. But when the time was right, God called Moses to lead His people out. How did God reveal Himself to Moses? What did Moses first see the first time he met the Lord? He saw the burning bush, right? And you could think of it as like the presence of God represented by by fire. It says the bush was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. So I don't think it was like a like a wildfire, right? It's just the presence of the Lord in this thing. And God revealed Himself. He says, "I am." who I am. I am Yahweh. He revealed himself and, and Moses started to know him. The people were led out of Egypt, you know, by God's mighty arm. Even that is revelation of his, his, you know, it's like light, who he is. And then how did he lead his people? How did they know where to go? How did they know when to rise up and move? How did they know when to stop and stay where they were? The cloud, right? They were led by the cloud and day. And I don't think it was like a big rain cloud, right? I think it was probably it was like, you never seen a cloud where like the sun is behind it and it looks like bright and glorious? Probably something like that. I don't know. But the cloud by day and the fire by night and God would lead them. Why light? Why this glory cloud? It's just God, a couple of reasons. Another thing that the light represents, well, we said it, I guess, is the presence of God, right? The closer you are to God, you are stepping into the light. You are near the light, right? And so, and so, God shows himself, he chose to show himself as this pillar of, of fire and cloud. And I wonder how tall it was, right? But all these hundreds of thousands, millions of people could see this thing and they could know that God was there. And God brought them to the mountain and made a covenant with the people. And he said things like, um, he said things like, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, the presence of God. At the foot of the mountain, he said, you yourselves saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. You shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It's, it's awesome, right? So God not only is revealing himself, but he's calling his people you know, to be with him, to be in that light. And then finally, this, the, when the tabernacle was built, the tent that God had, he told Moses, build it just like this. It was built so that he could be dwelling, as it were, in the middle of his people. That tent would be right in the middle of the camp. And finally, when the, when the tent was finally um, set up, when it was finally erected, 
it says that the glory of God came and settled on it, right? And so God is just proving, this is my place, you are my people, I am with you, fear not. Okay, so, so really, um, really glorious. He shows himself, he reveals himself to, to them in, in word and just who he is. Think about this. None of the other nations had any idea who God was. I mean, that's, we can, like it says, we can look at the mountains and the oceans and things and think, well, that's impressive. But nobody knows God's name. Nobody knows God's character. Nobody knows especially his mercy, his goodness, his kindness, his patience. And now he has shown this to the people. There's like this glorious light of God, as it were, and, and his presence is there as well. However, we've been going through minor prophets, and even as you read, especially, you know, I see this in Isaiah, is where they, they talk about darkness and light the most. Even with this glorious revelation of God, the people are still considered to be in darkness. It's not that they don't know who God is, but I don't know, he's just so veiled, so covered up, so misunderstood, so not understood, such ignorance, that it's compared to what was coming, people had no idea. So it's um, the people, even the people in Israel were said to be people who walked in darkness. But there was a promise that the people that walked in darkness would see a great light. And so compared to the light that was coming, what they saw was dim, so that's why it's called darkness. But then when the fullness of time came, that light came into the world. And of course, who is the light? Jesus. Jesus came into the world and he was a game changer, right? Listen to a few things that the New Testament writers say about Jesus as the light. It starts off like this. In the beginning was the word, right? This sounds just like Genesis. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, when Jesus came into the world, you know, picture, I don't know, you've seen those kind of like, the, like, I don't know, I want to say like a science fiction thing, but the, the pictures where it shows like the sun rising up over the earth or rising up over a planet, the dawn is, is rising, the day is coming. And when the, when, the, when the sun comes up and it rises, what happens to the night? We, we talk about it poetically like the night flees, right? Because the darkness isn't anything of substance, it just is the no light. But when Jesus comes into the world, there is nothing to oppose him. And when it says the darkness has not overcome it, right? The darkness can't overcome it. The darkness can't overtake it. It overtakes, you know, the darkness. So Jesus came into the world. He's called the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And here's one of the reasons why Jesus is such a, such, such a bright light, I guess. One, a, a great passage is the beginning of Hebrews. Listen to what this says about Jesus and about how he sheds so much more light on who God is than what anybody had known before. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, um, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Right? So when Jesus came into the world, now we know who God is. Right? If you, if you were to just start you know, before the New Testament, right, what, what the Israelites had, it was dim, right? They knew who God was. He revealed himself. But when Jesus came into the world, right, we know that Jesus is the one who created everything. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. What this means is that when you see Jesus, like in the pages of the Gospels, when you hear him described in the letters in the New Testament, you are seeing what God is like. When Jesus reaches out and he touches an unclean person that nobody would get close to, that's the kind of God we have, the one who would reach out and touch the untouchable, 
when you see Jesus um, provide miraculously for the people bread because he looked at them and he had compassion on them. He said, these people are going to faint on their way home. What are we going to do? And he provided for them. That's because it shows that God provides for, for the people, even when, they don't, even when they don't know they're being provided for. But you could go on and on when you see compassion, when you see Jesus in patience teaching his disciples that he'd been teaching for months or years, the same thing, you know, right before, right before the Last Supper, they were even arguing like, you know, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And you could just, you could imagine if it, was, if it was yourself, you'd be like, come on. And Jesus patiently stands up, takes off his robe, puts a towel around his waist, and then proceeds to wash the feet of his disciples, patiently, slowly teach them, this is my way. Whoever would be the greatest must be the servant of all. And so on. So anyway, the, the amazing thing is, is when Jesus comes into the world, he's the light in the sense that, that he reveals God like nobody else had because in a sense, we can see him in flesh and blood, right? We can see, we can see the passion of God. Anyway, slow down. Um, but it's an amazing thing. Does God love the world? Did God express love in the Old Testament? Well, certainly, but how do we know that God loves the world? Well, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How do you know that God loves? He did the most amazing thing. Is God kind in the world? Yes, he is. He's so kind to us that it says his kindness is what leads us to repentance, to come back to him. Is God patient in the world? Yeah, he's been waiting. He's been holding back 2,000 years for the day of the Lord to come for that final judgment so that he could call in people from every tribe and tongue and nation into, into his world, right? So Jesus said himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, right? He's, actually, he said this at the time when there was a big festival in Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of people, everybody's there. And they, I've read that at this festival, they would, they would light these huge lamps, torches, to represent the presence of God that was in Israel at the time of the wandering. And could you imagine any other man doing this? Jesus steps up, as it were, right in front of that huge lamp and goes, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amazing, right? So, and then finally, of course, in heaven, it goes as far as saying in Revelation that there's no need for a sun, there's no need for a moon, there's no nighttime, um, there is light because the glory of God provides the light and the lamb is the lamp. Okay, so you get, the, you get the idea of what light is. You can imagine darkness. And I'll just close with this. Not close, close, but close the light part. Okay, get to Romans. Um, where is Jesus' light now? Okay, because I don't see Jesus' light exactly. Right, when Jesus ascended, who did he leave behind? He left behind his disciples, right, his followers. And there were 120 of them sitting in that room waiting for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came in. And what happened to the people? The wind came in the room. And what happened? What were over the people's heads? Yeah, like a little fire, tongues of fire, it says. You might even call them little tiny pillars of fire, right? But we should relate that with God leading his, his people, okay? And so light represents knowledge of God. Light represents moral goodness and holiness. Light represents the presence of God, and that is like amped up, you know, a thousand times when Jesus came into the world. We went as a world from a world that was in darkness to a world where the light had come into the world. Jesus is the true light. He overpowers, overcomes, and overtakes the darkness, okay? And so we're going to get back into Romans 13 now.
And we'll see how that relates to what's going on in Romans. All right. So Romans is, is an amazing book by itself, and I'm not going to do a big Romans thing because I want to do this. But what the question is, what motivates us to want to follow Jesus, to follow obediently, to live in the light, to, to, you know, to do good? Okay, that's the question. And in the beginning of Romans, Paul describes the, the, the mercies of God, as it says, right? And he, at the end of this first 11 chapters, he says, in light of the mercies of God... Um, I'm forgetting. <laughs> By the mercy of God, present yourself, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, right? He says, look at what God has done for you. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. And he goes on to describe a bunch of things we ought to think, we ought to do, but it really comes down to what's written just before our passage in verse 8. Love one another. Owe nothing to anybody, but to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So these last chapters of Romans really talk about how do we live in the light of what Jesus has done for us? And it boils down to love one another. So that's one motivation, and that's a great one, and we could, we could do a sermon on that. But what does Romans 13, 11 say? We have another motivation, and it's this. He says, besides all this, besides all this, you know the time. Okay, so what does he mean, besides all this, you know the time? What is the time? So there's a few things. I'll, there's, you could look for this, well, Three things. First of all, one aspect about the time that we live in right now that should motivate us is this. Galatians 1.4 says, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So he calls where we live right now the present evil age. And really, this is the whole age, this is the world that we live in. This is the world that we lived in before Christ came into it. This is the world that we live in, in now, right? This is the world that is opposed to to the things of God that is ignorant of the things of God. It's in Ephesians 2, 2 it says, it's, it's this age following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. And John 3, 19 says, people loved darkness rather than the light because their, because their works were evil. This is the world that we live in, right? It's a world that not only doesn't know God and doesn't see God, but kind of wants to, you know, hide from God. But this is also the time, it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 6.2, Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right? So we don't just live in this dark time, but since Jesus came into the world, and not just to show an example, which he certainly did, but he came into the world, he lived among us, he lived a perfect life, but he died for our sin, he was buried, he rose back up again, and he's ascended to the Father. Now, after Jesus has come, everything has changed, okay? We still live in a dark world, but at the kind of at the same time, we live in the light of Jesus. And well, let me, I'll, I'll get to that in a sec. But this is the time that we live in, and now is the favorable time. And so the question is, if somebody is living in darkness, right, if you live in darkness, the question is, are you part of this evil age, this existing age, or are you part of this sort of new age living in the light of Jesus? Because right now, now, it says now is the favorable time, now is the, um, now is the day of salvation, right? There's this time where the window is open, right? And I guess even when I say a window is open, that implies there's an end, an end date to that. But we live in this dark world. People are born into darkness. I was in darkness for those first 20-something years um, before that light came on. But Jesus calls out. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me that I will never cast out. So what does it mean to come to Jesus? Right, if somebody said, if somebody wanted to ask you, like, well, okay, Jesus says, come to me, what does that mean? How can I come to him, right? 
and there's a bunch of ways that you could say that. Um, and one that stuck out to me this week is Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are these couple of aspects. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you confess with your mouth, right, you stand up and you say in the world, Jesus is Lord. And what that means is that Jesus is the son of God, right? Jesus is, is Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus is the son of God, right, is the first thing. Secondly, it means that Jesus came into the world and he became a man. How can he be God and be a man at the same time? I don't know. He's truly God and truly man, and that's another sermon. But it's, it's incomprehensible. It's almost, like, I mean, could be the greatest miracle. How can he do that? But that's who he is. Do you believe it? You've got to confess with your mouth that Jesus is that Lord, that he died for our sin. He died for sin, and this gets back to the, the beginning, right? Jesus takes away sin, and there's nothing that we can do. Jesus Jesus is Lord means he died for sin. He rose again. He's life. Jesus is Lord. It's not just he was Lord for 30 years. Jesus is Lord now. And then it says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And it's a cool phrase, isn't it? Believe in your heart. So it's partly it's believe. You got to know who he is. Jesus is Lord. You got to believe it's true. But you know, as, as James says, like even the, even the devil believes and he knows, he knows it's true, but the demons shudder. So it's not just you believe it's true, but, but you trust in it as your only way. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. When he says that the way is straight, meaning narrow, um, there's really, it's because there's one way, it's through Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Um, but also, so it's, I know it's true, I trust in it, and I got to add on, I mean, your heart should just delight in it, right? When you really understand it, right, that should be a really good sign if you kind of just, you want to jump up and say, yes, I believe in it, right, because I'm excited about it. But now is the favorable time, but there is a window. At the, um, in Matthew uh, 25, Jesus tell, tells three stories to really tell his disciples, be prepared, be watchful, be ready, because I am returning, and you know not when. And the first one is the story of the ten virgins, right? And briefly, the story is this. There's a wedding, the bridegroom is delayed, the ten virgins, the bridesmaids, they come out. They're going to meet him when he does arrive. It says five were wise, and they brought oil for their lamps, you know, just in case, I guess, <laughs> right? And five were foolish. They were not prepared. And at midnight, there was the cry. You know, the, the, the bridegroom was delayed. At midnight, there's the cry. Bridegroom is here. Come and meet him. And so all the people that were prepared to meet him, they trimmed their lamps, and they went in. But those who were unprepared, it's kind of like they, 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 start, they startled out of their slumber. It startled out of their sleep and said, whoa, he's here now. I guess I better get ready but it was too late. They went off to get the oil and came back, and that's part of the story. But the idea is they missed it. They were unprepared. They missed it. And they knocked on the door, and they said, Lord, let us in. And he says, I don't know who you are. People were not prepared. And so what time is it right now? The first aspect is we, we live in this evil age. Be aware of that. Second was um, this one here. We live, today is a day of salvation but there is a window. And I guess to close that window, third is back to our passage in verse 11. Um, oh, second half of verse 11. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Okay, that's the other part of this time. What time do we live in? We live in a time when our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Okay, so near, it, salvation is nearer. So you might say, well, wait a second, I thought I was already saved. I thought it was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I didn't know it was you'll be saved like sometime in the future. <laughs> and of course, what it is is the Bible talks, our, our salvation is not just 
your sins are forgiven. It's, it's this whole complex of, of life and transformation, and it's something that takes a long time. It's true that when we believe we are, our, we are, we are cleansed of our sin, we are, uh, we are forgiven of our sin, there's no guilt, no condemnation, peace with God, all of that is totally true. We have been saved, glorious. But there's a sense which now we're being saved as the Lord continues to work with us and train us and purge us of you know, these ongoing, ongoing sin that's in our natures. But then what he's talking about here is your salvation, like the real salvation, the done, done, complete salvation, the, um, the, the time when, when you, you yourself will be cleansed of your sin. This world that we live in will be a new heavens and a new earth where there will be nobody to sin against you. The curse will be lifted. Not only that, um, we'll have bodies that are, that are remade, resurrected, new bodies that are ready to, I don't know, do whatever we're fit to do in the new heavens and the new earth. That salvation is closer than when you first believed. What that means is that, like, maybe you first believed 10 years ago, you are 10 years closer, okay? Maybe you first believed yesterday, <laughs> you're a day closer. And that might, not, that might sound obvious, but you should be really happy about that because we live in a difficult, in a difficult world, in a difficult time, right? There's joy in our life, but there's pain in our life. And this is meant to give hope, right? If you're going through a tough time, if it's family things, if it's heartbreak, if it's if it's just the weariness of ongoing medical or pain or chronic anything, you are one day closer to your salvation. And so he is saying here, consider the time. Know the time that you're in right now. We live in this evil age. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus has come. We live between when Jesus came and when Jesus is returning again. Your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. When does the salvation come? When the Lord returns, right? And so this is the time that we live in. Okay, so as we're trying to understand what motivates me toward this godly living, that's kind of the first, the first thing in Romans 13 is know the time. Second thing is this, wake up. So verse 11, I'm getting a few of these verses out of order, right? But verse 11 goes on to say, well, besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Sounded like what Mike read in 1 uh, Thessalonians. Very, very similar. The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Okay, so the second thing to know is we got to wake up. So again, asleep, sleep, and sleep, and awake, and light, and darkness, nighttime, daytime. These are all these kind of metaphors. Right now, you know, again, Jesus came into a dark world, and that dark world continues. And so we, but, but things changed when he came into the world. Like one way to think about it is like we're in this kind of in-between phase, like, like the dawn, right? So Jesus has come into the world, and it's like the dawn is coming. The day is rapidly approaching. The night will be scattering, and it will be gone forever at, uh, at some point. The light's increasing. Darkness is being driven out. But I think you can also think about it as, from the perspective of an individual, it's almost like there's these... Work with me here, right? It's kind of like these parallel ages, right? This world is in darkness. People in this world are in darkness. Some of you may be in darkness apart from God. And we're, you're in the same place you would have been in 3,000 years ago in, name your place, right? Apart from the presence of God. But if you know Jesus now, you are now in the light. Like it's, he's not just like a little, a little sun that's creaking over the, over the horizon, right? But Jesus has, has brought light into the world. And if you know the Lord Jesus now, you are actually in the day right now. So however you want to think about this, for you yourself, if you are in the light, wake up. And really what this 1 Thessalonians 5, what Mike read before, you are all children of light. You're children of the day. We are not of the night. 
or of the darkness. Let's not sleep like others do, but keep awake and be sober. If you're asleep, like think about it, what it just means to understand the metaphor. What does it mean to be asleep? Right? It means you're insensible to things that are going on. If you're dozing on the couch and you hear some noise in the kitchen, you might go, you know, or whatever. Right? You can imagine that. You don't know what's going on. You can't see what's going on. Maybe you hear a little bit about what's going on. You're insensitive to what's going on. It means that you don't perceive reality correctly. You might be dreaming, right? You might have dreams and they're just not, not true. You're certainly in a state of inaction, hopefully, <laughs> when you're sleeping, okay? And, and that's the way that people in the world live. It's kind of like walking sleep, just counting the time, kind of like in, like in a prison where people are just sort of shuffling around. I got nothing to look forward to, nothing to hope for. I'll just kind of slow down and what difference does it make anyway? And so if people who are asleep have their senses dulled, they don't, they don't know what's going on. They don't realize that there's a God in heaven. They, um, they don't know how the, we've been designed to behave, to act, to think, to relate to one another. Um, they don't see the world as passing away. They're, they're grasping for these things in the world, pride, prestige, power, money, the things that you can buy, possessions, that are going to pass away. And it's understandable when that's the way that people are in the world. But for a Christian, we live in the daytime now, so it's time to wake up. We have this limited time where we have this opportunity to serve God and to do these good works that he, he prepared beforehand for us to do. We should wake up and do that. The Christian that doesn't do that doesn't see a world that's passing away, but a world just to enjoy for now. I'm going to enjoy this for now. Um, a Christian who is asleep doesn't see people who are lost in the darkness, doesn't really care, whatever and so on, right? But if, um, if, we, if we don't wake up, then we've really lost the battle before it's even been engaged. So the second thing to do is to wake up. The day has dawned, and let's get ready. And then finally, the, uh, the punchline, the last part here, the last thing that we are to do is to get dressed. And so in verse uh, 13, no, no, 12, <laughs> verse 12, the night's far gone, the day's at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, right? So it's time to get dressed, okay? You're waking up, you're groggy, it's five in the morning, you're trying to, you're trying to get up, you know, you gotta take off what you're wearing, right? You got your, I don't know, bedtime clothes, whatever they are, that's inappropriate, right? That's not, that's not ready for, for, for action, right? But it's time to get up, get dressed. And the, really the way to think about this, it says, cast off the works of darkness. And it goes on to say, not in orgies and drunkenness, or you could say carousing and reveling, not wild partying, okay? That's the works of darkness. That's the way things were. Look at Romans chapter 1. That's the course of this world. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality, chasing after pleasure, chasing after um, whatever the next high is, seeking pleasure above all things in whatever case. Not like that. That's the old way. That's the old nature. That's the old world. Cast off the works of darkness, not in quarreling and jealousy. It's not just these gross things that were like, oh, ew, <laughs> I can't believe he said that. It's, it's even things like quarreling and jealousy. Does your heart just want that one thing? Cast that aside. That's old stuff. Um, are you fighting with somebody over something that is passing away? Cast that aside. That's old stuff. Cast out the works of darkness, but, um, but um, put on, and you might expect it to say put on righteousness, put on holiness. I don't know, but he says put on armor of light. And so what he's really saying is, don't think of getting, get up and get dressed as, all right, I'll get up, I'll get my coffee, I'll read the paper, and I'll go to my desk job, right? Don't think that. Think, I am, I am like, I'm in the barracks right off the battlefield. I got to get up. I got to put on my armor. I got I to put on my weapon. It's time to get to work. Like, this is serious, okay? 
And that's what he's getting at. And the Bible uses this metaphor all the time. Um, again, 1 Thessalonians 5 that Mike read earlier talks about putting on the breastplate of... Uh, anyway, it boils down to um, faith, hope, and love in that one. <laughs> I forget which is which. Or in um, Ephesians 6, we've all heard the... Um, well, I'm... I'm way off script now. But in Ephesians 6, right, we're in battle, you know, not just against flesh and blood, but against authorities and princes and powers of darkness, right? We need to be prepared. We need to be watchful. We need to know what's going on. Let's not be like the disciples where Jesus said, pray with me. And they fell asleep. It was bad enough they fell asleep. It's not like they just didn't support him. But when, when the test came, they were, not, they were not ready. So we need to wake up, put on this armor of light. And again, what does that mean? What does that mean? He answers that in verse 14. We're almost done. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Another way of saying put on the armor of light is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it might sound like a funny thing, like how do you put on Jesus? Um, But this is, again, a kind of a a way of speaking in the Bible where it says, the one that really helps me to clarify it is in Galatians 3.27, it says, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Right? Being baptized in Christ means being identified with him. It means like when you're baptized with Jesus, it's like, I am with you forever. I identify with you. I'm on your team. I'm putting on your jersey. I am with you. And when that happens, you start to take on the characteristics of Jesus. That's what we're meant to do. That's why we're called Christians, right? Because we identify uh, with the Lord Jesus. Jesus died for sin. I've died to sin. Jesus rose back to new life. <laughs> I've been raised to new life. Jesus will never die again. Well, my body will die, but mine will be raised like his, never to die again. I'm secure. And so if you're a Christian, you have already put on Christ, but the reminder is keep doing it every morning, right? Know the time, wake up, put on Christ. And so, so I guess this is the message, okay? Know the time that we live in, okay? The Lord has come into the world once. The Lord is returning sometime, maybe soon. We don't know. Be prepared for it now. What are we motivated by? We know that he is returning for sure, 100%. Whatever's going on right now is like a light momentary affliction compared to this glory that awaits for us. So persevere, persevere. What's our motivation for doing good works? Living in the light of the day. And by living in the light of the day, I mean like the light of the Lord. I also mean that the day um, that he's returning. And I'm going to close by just reading the last stanza of the thing that we just said there, okay? Because we have these hymns, and I can sing these ones super loud, whether I feel happy or sad. Some I'm like feeling not like, that's not how I feel. But every time there's one of these songs that say, God sent Jesus into the world, Jesus died for my sin, Jesus rose again, and he's coming back, I can sing that loud no matter how I'm feeling. It says, one day the trumpet will sound for his coming. One day the skies with his glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one bringing my Savior Jesus is mine. Glorious day. So it is an amazing thing. And my prayer really is that, that, that we would all, you know, take this call seriously. Wake up, rejoice at the time that we live in and make the best use of that time. So let's pray. Father, you are, you are worthy of all really all honor and praise. And I don't know the right words because your plan for salvation is so much bigger than saving Walter from his sins. You have planned from the beginning of the world to show everything great about yourself, holiness, power, might, majesty, faithfulness, but also mercy, kindness in ways that nobody could have guessed. 
And it's so amazing that it just even takes thousands of years to draw out this, this glory and amazing, amazing stuff. Father, thank you for sending our Lord into the world. Words can't even express it. But Father, thanks for not just stopping it at saving from sin, but giving this new, transforming life. Father, would you, would you give us hearts that are just overjoyed, overwhelmed, ready to serve, ready to love one another, ready to find people who need help with something, ready to find people who need to hear what a great God you are. Put that desire in our hearts, please, to just let us speak of your glory. Father, help us in that. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.